As you know from your study of Matthew's Gospel so far, most scholars agree that in writing his Gospel, Matthew relied heavily on the Gospel of Mark. Matthew used Mark's basic structure and the vast majority of his narrative. Of course, Matthew used other sources and traditions as well, resulting in a longer Gospel with many distinct features, such as Matthew's infancy narrative and the Sermon on the Mount. Another area where Matthew provides his own unique material is in the resurrection narrative found in the last chapter of the Gospel, Matthew 28. In the previous chapters of the Gospel, Matthew 26 and 27, Matthew follows Mark's narrative of the passion and death of Jesus closely. But when it comes to the resurrection narrative, Matthew includes stories that are unique to his Gospel. In fact, Matthew's resurrection narrative is one of many good answers to the question, why do we need four Gospels? The variety provided among the Gospels gives us a fuller picture of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For comparison purposes, let's look for a moment at the ending of Mark's Gospel, which Matthew was relying on as his primary source. When I teach New Testament, my students are often dismayed to discover that the original ending of Mark's Gospel is a bit of a cliffhanger. In chapter 16, the last chapter of his Gospel, Mark tells us that on the first day of the week, a group of women go to Jesus' tomb with the intention of anointing his body. When they come to the tomb, they're surprised to find that the stone has been rolled away from the entrance. Mark writes, On entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a white robe, and they were utterly amazed. He said to them, Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, as he told you. Then they went out and fled from the tomb, seized with trembling and bewilderment. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. How could this be the end of the story? Why are the women so afraid? Why don't they follow the young man's instructions? Do they tell the others or not? And where is the risen Christ? Of course, there are many theories about why Mark ends his gospel this way. Perhaps it was intentional on Mark's part to create a sense of urgency on the part of the reader to encourage the reader to be the one to go tell the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Or perhaps part of Mark's ending was lost over time. We simply don't know. But this abrupt ending obviously bothered at least some members of the early church, because in the second century, a longer ending, consisting of verses 9 to 20, was added to Mark 16 and is now part of our canonical gospel. But the fact remains that Mark's original composition ends abruptly without what we might consider a satisfying ending. Of course, we know the rest of the story, but we want to hear it. And so it's wonderful to read the resurrection narratives in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. Each one provides us with different stories of encounters and interactions with the risen Christ. Before we look at Matthew's resurrection narrative together, let's consider four distinct types of resurrection accounts that we find in the New Testament. Note that none of the four evangelists attempt to describe the resurrection itself. Instead, each evangelist gives us some combination of the following types of resurrection accounts. First are statements of resurrection faith. These are simple declarations that Christ has been raised, spoken in faith by individuals in the Gospels. 
For example, in John's Gospel, Mary Magdalene declares to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And in Luke's Gospel, the disciples proclaim, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. A second type of resurrection account is the empty tomb narrative. These are stories of Jesus' followers arriving at the tomb of Jesus and finding it empty. Even Mark's gospel, with its abrupt ending, includes this type of resurrection account. A third type of resurrection account is the type we usually think of, appearances of the risen Christ to his followers. The gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John, and as a later edition, the longer ending of Mark, all include these types of narratives. And finally, a fourth type of resurrection account is the ascension narrative. Of the four gospels, only Luke and Mark's later longer ending include a narrative of the risen Christ's ascension into heaven. Now that we know what we're looking for, let's look closely at Matthew's resurrection narrative. You may wish to have your Bibles open to Matthew 28. The first thing we'll notice in verses one to eight is an empty tomb narrative. Here, Matthew begins to deviate from his source, Mark, and strike out on his own path, editing and expanding Mark's account with his own traditions, his own information and stories of the resurrection of Jesus. Like Mark, Matthew tells us that a group of women who had witnessed the burial of Jesus went to the tomb on the day after the Sabbath. Aside from a slightly different list of women, there are several details unique to Matthew in this empty tomb narrative including an earthquake and an angel who descends from heaven to roll back the stone and then sit on it. Instead of the more mysterious figure in Mark's gospel, a young man dressed in white who tells the women that Jesus has been raised, Matthew explicitly tells us that the bearer of good news is an angel and that his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. This description might remind us of Jesus's glorious appearance at the Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Not surprisingly, this unusual heavenly sight frightens the guards, and Matthew tells us that they became like dead men. New Testament scholar Raymond Brown notes the irony here. Jesus is alive, but the guards at the tomb, who are meant to prevent any claims of resurrection, are like dead men. The angel's words to the women are similar to those of the man in white in Mark's Gospel. He says, do not be afraid. I know that you are seeking Jesus, the crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead, and he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Note that in the angel's words, he has been raised, we have an example of the first type of resurrection account a declaration of resurrection faith. Also notice that the angel says, he has been raised just as he said. Where in the gospel did Jesus say he would be raised? Three clear examples can be found in the three predictions Jesus makes, warning of his impending death. We call these passion predictions, but each one of them is also a resurrection prediction. For example, in Matthew 17, 22 to 23, Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. The implication for the women at the tomb is, Jesus told his followers that this would happen. Weren't you paying attention? Didn't you all believe him? 
just as in Mark's gospel, the heavenly visitor tells the women to go quickly and tell his disciples that he has been raised and that he will meet them in Galilee. But here we can breathe a sigh of relief because unlike in Mark's gospel, the women do not flee from the tomb, seized with trembling and bewilderment, failing to tell anyone the good news they have heard. Rather, Matthew tells us that the women went away quickly from the tomb, fearful yet overjoyed, and ran to announce this to his disciples. Note the following contrasts in the two accounts. While Mark writes that the women fled from the tomb, Matthew says they went away quickly. While Mark describes the women as being seized with trembling and bewilderment, Matthew portrays them as fearful yet overjoyed. And while Mark says that the women said nothing to anyone, Matthew tells us that they ran to announce this to his disciples. Clearly, the women in Matthew's account are taken aback by the angel and the empty tomb and the message. But Matthew wants to be clear that the women do not just stand there in awe. They believe this declaration of resurrection faith that he has been raised, and they are overjoyed. Instead of running away from something, they run towards something. They run to the disciples of Jesus, the others who will believe and share the good news in turn. However, before the women can complete their errand, they encounter none other than the risen Christ. This encounter, the third type of resurrection account, is entirely unique to Matthew's gospel. And behold, Jesus met them on their way and greeted them. They approached, embraced his feet, and did him homage. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Several things are worth noting here. First, the women embraced his feet. This is a striking image. Like the Gospels of Luke and John, Matthew very intentionally includes a concrete physical image in his resurrection narrative. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus explicitly says, touch me, I'm not a ghost. He then eats some fish to prove it. In John's Gospel, the risen Jesus invites Thomas to touch the nail marks in his hands and to put his hand into the wound in his side. Here in Matthew's Gospel, the embrace of Jesus's feet serves the same purpose. This is no ghost. This is no mirage. This is no wishful vision. This is Jesus, risen, embodied, touchable. Second, we are told that in embracing his feet, the women did him homage. You may recognize this phrase from Matthew's infancy narrative. In Matthew 2.11, we are told that on entering the house, the Magi found the child with Mary, his mother. They prostrated themselves and did him homage. Indeed, in several other places in Matthew's gospel, individuals or groups do him homage. A leper who asks to be healed, a man who asks Jesus to revive his dead daughter, the disciples on the boat after they witness Jesus walking on water, a Canaanite woman who asks Jesus to heal her daughter, and the mother of James and John before asking rather boldly if her sons might sit at Jesus's right and left in his kingdom. Clearly, the reference to homage being paid to Jesus is a strong theme in Matthew's Gospel. The Greek word proskenin, which the New American Bible Revised Edition is translating as do homage, means to do reverence, to go down on one's knees before authority or even divinity. And so this word, which includes both a physical and a spiritual component, can be translated with the term used here 
to do homage, or it can be translated as worship. We'll come across this word one more time in the gospel when the 11 remaining disciples encounter the risen Christ. As we will see, our translation will leave no room for doubt in this encounter. The word worship will be used, but more on that in a moment. After a brief interlude in which we are told that the guards from the tomb are bribed by the chief priests to say that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, Matthew tells us that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had ordered them. At last, we have confirmation that the women have shared the good news with the 11. And it appears that the 11 believe them or want to believe them enough to make their way north to Galilee to see for themselves. One of my favorite verses from the gospel tells us what happens next. When they saw Jesus, they worshiped, but they doubted. Have we come all this way, 28 chapters of the conception, birth, life, teachings, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus, only to be left with doubt? It's shocking, it's disappointing, and yet it's so very comforting to us, the reader. Even when facing the resurrected Christ, Jesus, their teacher, raised from the dead, the disciples are only human. Their minds are racing. They're witnessing something they've never seen or imagined before. Yes, Jesus had told them multiple times that he would be raised. But for the human mind, faith is not that simple. The act of worship is deep, profound, sincere. It doesn't always just happen. Matthew is sharing something very genuine here about human experience. We all worship and doubt. In fact, we may do both simultaneously. As Raymond Brown writes in his commentary on this verse, faith is not an easy, shallow response to resurrection. He also writes quite insightfully that Jesus is not repelled by doubt. Jesus does not upbraid the disciples or walk away. Rather, the text says he approached. Jesus only draws closer to the conflicted disciples. In this verse from the last chapter of Matthew's gospel, we find a place where we can naturally insert ourselves into this fantastic narrative. Like the Magi, the leper, the Canaanite woman, and the disciples, we recognize that Jesus is different than any human being who ever lived before like the women who encounter the empty tomb, who run to tell the others, who embrace the feet of the risen Christ. We are fearful, but joyful. We believe, like the disciples, we'll go to Galilee. We'll hike up the mountain to see Jesus. We're excited. But when we get to that mountaintop, we too may hesitate. Worship means we're all in. Doubt means we aren't sure. What will we do? Will we worship? or will we doubt? Well, we'll probably carry on doing some of both. And here in this scripture is a powerful witness that that just might be normal. Our faith will have its ups and downs. Our minds will struggle to comprehend what resurrection means and who this risen Christ really, truly, fully is. But our instinct to worship him, to worship his glory and his otherness, to give ourselves over to it and to him is sound. And no matter what is going through our racing minds, we are there with Jesus on the mountaintop. He will still approach us as he approached the 11, 
and greet us with a powerful declaration and give us a great command and assure us with loving words. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age.